it going, Matt? Oh, Jonathan, I'm doing great. How are you? Good. It's good to be back together. We, we haven't done one of these in a long time. I know. We say this every single time, but this time we really mean it. We're going to start doing them more often. How, how's your happy summer? How's your summer been? It, it's been it's been good, Matt. I just spent the weekend at a friend's daughter's bat mitzvah in Portland, Oregon. Right. The... And when, I, when I made the reservations three weeks ago, I was like, great, 75 degrees. Portland is so awesome in June, July. Get out, get out of the North Carolina heat. Exactly. And yes, and on Sunday, it was 115 degrees. We retreated to a bowling alley. Yeah, <laughs> 115. There was no way we could be outside. That's so. what you did. You all escaped into AC. Yeah. We, we escaped into AC, yes. So, Jonathan, as you know, we were just briefly chatting. I just got back from two and a half weeks in the West, also like hiking around. I was in the Grand Canyon, among other places. But the yep. last day, we rolled into Las Vegas, played a little blackjack that night, did, did, did very well. Just Good. want to put that out there. Okay. Um, 119 degrees with a 30 mile per hour hot wind. I mean, it was just a hellscape. I, I do not understand how people live out there. And, and my memory of Las Vegas, I haven't been there in a long time, but when you're there in the summer, even if you walk outside at 11 o'clock at night. It was, it was 99. Like a blast of heat. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'd say that I ran from my motel to the casino, except it was too hot to run. You just said, I mean, what do you do? Do you, do you run to get out of the heat or do you walk slowly not to you know, expire. Yeah. It's, it's just disturb all the heat molecules. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about playing a little poker, um, but decided okay. just to stick to a blackjack. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Blackjack is a little, feels a little less intimidating. Yeah, it is. There's, there's always a right and a wrong move in blackjack where poker is a little, a little fuzzier. And so, you know, one of the things on my two and a half week trip is that I wasn't paying too much attention to the world of sports. So I'm kind of hoping we could use this moment as an opportunity for you to get me up to speed what, what's been going on, although I have paid a little bit of attention and, of course, have some hot takes on, on okay. the issues. Yeah, I, I can. So uh, I guess the first thing that's worth talking about is the NC State baseball team. Yeah, that's something um, I wanted to address. Which made a terrific run to the College World Series. A terrific run, right? I mean, I was kind of following them. Did you? You paid attention to them in the super regional against yeah. Arkansas, the number one. They lost 21 to two in game one. They got waxed in game one. Yeah. Yep. And then a one run victory in game two and a one run victory in game. So they get outscored by what? 19 runs in, right. the, in the series and they win and they make it to the College World Series. Right. 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 This isn't soccer where you can advance based on your. Goals for goals against spread. No aggregate in, no in aggregate. baseball. Uh, right. So they make this great run to the the College World Series, getting through the number one team in the country. And then it all goes south because what? So I think on I think their final game, which was a week ago Friday, they were only able to suit up 13 players. Right. They had done really well, right? They had beaten uh, the Leiter kid, uh, the, yeah. you know, the, the Vanderbilt yeah. kid, Al Leiter's son, Jack, I guess, who's going to be a Jack Leiter, that's right. Yeah. Leiter yeah. struck out 15 guys on the Wolf Pack, but he gave up a solo dinger, and yeah. that was and that. They beat, him, they beat him one nothing, right? Yeah, and then they had 13, and then they started doing COVID testing, which everyone knew they were going to do. Yes. Um, just right just testing the guys who hadn't been vaccinated first is what i understand that's right yeah yeah and 
couple guys tested positive and then they tested more and I don't know, eight guys tested positive for, I think that's right. And, and so enough so that they, a, they couldn't field a team and B, they didn't meet the threshold that the NCAA set for continuing on. Okay. And so who do we, we need to blame someone here. <laughs> who or what do we blame for this? I mean, first so, of all, yeah. No sympathy for the NC State Wolfpack here. Zero. Zilch. Uh, None. I'm I'm with you. These vaccines are universally available now. And those are the rules going in. You knew what the rules were. I agree. You participated. You should have been vaccinated. Right. And, and, And you cannot say that everything is about team first, except for this one decision. You just can't say that. You mean because being vaccinated is a is what a good teammate does? Yeah, it's what a good team. I mean, for the simple reason that if you want to keep playing, the yeah. first basic thing you do is do the thing that ensures that this won't happen to you. Right. 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 But yeah. but 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 it's become you know this has become the standard line, and we've heard it from many athletes, among other people, that it's a personal choice. And I mean, even from a public health perspective, that's not right. But leaving that aside, in this case, it's obviously not a personal choice because per what you just said, Matt, about the rules, the rules are clear. Right. If a certain number of people are positive, you're out. And Jonathan, I, you know, I I suppose we should say we obviously hope everyone is okay. And I, I I just heard today that it's the, it's the Delta variant that, that eight of them have, which is something that I think we're still trying to, you know, gather information about. So that's a little frightening, although I trust that these young men are going to be okay in this. We assume they'll be fine. Right. And we're, and when we say no sympathy, we're obviously not talking about the illness itself. We're talking about what they could have done to keep playing. Yeah, and, and and reading what a lot of NC State fans have said, they feel uh, aggrieved. I don't feel aggrieved for them. I, I I gotta say, the guy who drove me nuts was their their head coach, um, Elliot uh, Elliot Avent, who said yeah. he did not want to, and the word he used was indoctrinate his players with his own personal views. Right. He called this a political issue. Well, and and, the, and so so that's why this is Trump's fault. Right. I mean, yeah. in many ways, yeah. because he turned vaccinations into a political issue. A political, right. And right. so here we are. But I mean, and, I, and here I'm, I'm 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 borrowing from my good friend, Jonathan Gerard, who wrote an op ed in the in, in the NNO, who said, since when is obeying NCAA rules indoctrination? You know, since si- right. since when is civic responsibility indoctrination what in the hell is this guy talking about and and if there were any other rule including any other health mandate not related to covid we would not be having this discussion that's right it just became they would just comply that's right because it became politicized last year because covid hit during an election year yeah right so so i mean anyway so it really does reflect the larger catastrophe (laughs) that we're living through. Right. Um, and obviously it makes it, I mean, th- this is where this is where it makes it hard to be sympathetic because you don't have to buy into that narrative and that's what it is. Yeah, well, and I, I thought you um, made a good, a good point. You and I were, were just briefly uh, chatting, like what the hell are we gonna talk about 
today. And, yeah. and, and you wanted to compare that story to what's going on in the WNBA yes. right now with regards to, to, to vaccinations. Yes. yes, so 99% of WNBA players are vaccinated. And, and, and Matt, let's note that, I mean, which I think is it, it even though we, we both just lamented a, a minute ago that this has all become politicized, that 99% rate also reflects the particular political outlook that most WNBA players share and that the league culture is sort of cultivated. So, you know, in that way, it makes compliance easier also. But, you know, it's, and I mean, this, I'm giving them full credit, but it's right, right. It, like if we were going to predict which league would have the highest vaccination rate. And I mean, I oh, think part of we would know, we would know who it was, right? Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and and let's know too that this this is going to be consequential. It is and will continue to be consequential for other sports. I know that the Chicago Cubs, for example, you know, they Major League Baseball had set a threshold that if teams reach 85% vaccine compliance, they are exempt from various kinds of COVID protocols testing, contact tracing, isolation, et cetera, that obviously competitively matter in terms of how long players might have to sit out, et cetera. And, they, and, and I know their management was very frustrated that they did not reach the 85% threshold. Right, and, and the, the NFL has laid out similar rules. I mean, if you are an unvaccinated NFL player, your life is going to be very, very tedious in the upcoming right. season with wearing masks and with constant testing. And, right. uh, you know, the, the NFL, which is pushing for it, they don't have the same politics as, as they do in the WNBA, but it's all about money. We exactly. just got to keep, we got to keep our players on the field. I mean, that's right. what people want to see. Maybe college baseball just doesn't have enough money around it to make this, this sort of, you know, the NCAA basketball players, I think were getting vaccinated as they went into the tournament because there was just too much money at, at, that's, at, that, that, that's a good that's a good point um and i guess i do wonder also to to bring it back to politics um you know it is possible that the ideological makeup of the nc state baseball team is different than the ideological makeup of the nc state basketball team for example i would assume that it was or that right? it and so that might also be a factor and yeah a level of um, compliance. Jonathan, on the on the topic of the WNBA, I'm wondering if you've seen the, um, I think it was the ESPN documentary, 144 yet, about the WNBA? I've not seen it yet, no. In the bubble? No. All right. Well, I'm just going to highly recommend this to you and uh, okay. the two or three people who are going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, 144, which is just the, the, the number of w, WNBA players who were in the bubble. And not only is it a really interesting sports story about what playing sports in a bubble is like but it is such a remarkable portrayal of the, the these remarkable female athletes who almost no one knows about yeah. right they're yeah. incredibly talented i was i was kind of surprised and blown away watching the documentary and, and i watch wnba games every once in a while but just the the amount of skill on the court on in wnba games it, it it really showed that but it also just showed what it's like to be a young black woman in the black lives matter era and to be a mother you know to, to, to be someone who's playing professional sports 
by day and then watching your two-year-old kid at night, things that LeBron James and Russell Westbrook and others just not, do. Not, not, not to mention, Matt, having recovered from pregnancy and childbirth yeah. and getting your body back in the shape necessary to play athletics at, at an elite level, which is, I mean, it's interesting. Look, Matt, you and I are roughly the same age. And so when we were growing up, I mean, some women's sports were on our radar, tennis, Olympic figure skating, et cetera. But yeah. we just were not acculturated to women playing, as many women participating in sports and all the sports they were playing. And the, so just, it's still like something for me to process that elite athletes will, you know, will go through childbirth right. and then return to play, you know, like Serena Williams did. And yes. I mean, and so it's it, anyway, it's just, it's just interesting. And it's a narrative we're not familiar with. And not what, it's not what we grew up with. You yeah, know, not right. to say that there weren't any back then, but we really didn't hear about it. That's right. Know? That's right. So, so, so 144, put it on your list. I'm, okay. I'm proud of it. It really is one of the best sports documentaries I've ever seen. You know, just a quick thing about the bubble in the WNBA, and I, I guess about women's sports generally, you know, there was so much talk last year about how far ratings were, television ratings were down right. in sports, like the NBA in the bubble, for example, and baseball and all of them. All sports. And for, for women's sports, that has not been true. Correct. Right. I mean, I just saw that, first of all, I think WNBA ratings have been really good. Um, I mean, you know, better than they've been. And I think I saw, at least as of a couple of weeks ago, the Women's College World Series, which is softball, and the Men's College World Series, which is baseball, their ratings, at least for some swath of their postseason tournaments, were the same. Hmm. Um, so anyway, I it's... Um, so it, it, while it's true that women's sports obviously don't get nearly the attention that men's sports get, it does feel like there's a shift that's going on. Um, which I think is probably um, a perfect segue to the other, one of the other things we wanted to talk about, about a, about a shift in the way that people are thinking about college sports in, in, yes. in general. I understand there was a big Supreme Court, although... How big it yeah. was, I'm not exactly sure. So I'm, I'm hoping you can break this down for me, but a pretty yeah. big Supreme Court decision with regards to the NCAA the last couple all right. of weeks. All right, well, first of all, Matt, the first headline that we need to get out there is that Brett Kavanaugh is my new favorite Supreme Court justice. Well, I don't think he really is. In fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back to that at, at, at the end, you, you're the political guy. So I want you to tell me what this really means moving forward. For the well, court right, so, so and, and I am joking because in general, right. I'm not a fan of his, but he wrote a great concurring opinion, which we will right. talk a little bit about. Yeah. Um, including about what the significance of that concurring opinion was because it was not the court's opinion. But this is, this is the Alston case. Right. One of a series of cases that have been litigated over the last decade that in various ways, have involved college athletes challenging the NCAA's amateurism rules on things like direct compensation and on the question of whether college athletes should be able to profit off of their names, images, and likenesses. 
The NCAA has fought all of these things tooth and nail oh, yeah. for many years now. Yeah. Um, under the, the, the and the, and their 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 core argument is that the the key to this popularity, success, and educational integrity of college athletics is that it is amateur, and that if college athletes cease to be amateurs, it will undermine not only the core educational mission, which the NCAA continues to insist is the core purpose of NCAA athletics, and it will undermine fan popularity because fans like the fact that they are rooting for amateurs. It gives them a special connection to the sport that they wouldn't otherwise have, and therefore is necessary for the future of the NCAA for amateurism to be preserved. Actually, Matt, let me read you Quickly from uh, Kavanaugh's concurring opinion. Jonathan, can I jump in for one quick second? Yes, please, please, please. Before you do that, all right. Yeah. So the 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 claim that the NCA makes that college sports is that that it's an educational mission is yes, first and foremost is the biggest bunch of BS I've ever heard in my life. So <laughs> I'm not even going to argue against that, right? Whatever. That, that that's just dumb. We all know that uh, true. Yeah, no, no, Matt, I actually wasn't even going to say that because it's so stupid. I can't even believe that they <laughs> say it with a straight face, but it in fact remains their core argument. But but, so. but, but what about the second argument? The, are, are they wrong when they say that most fans value amateurism in college sports? And if uh, they don't know what will happen if amateurism goes away, I contend college sports will be just as popular, if not more popular. But that doesn't mean they're wrong, does it, when they say right. that that, right. that that you know college sports fans value the amateur ethos? Matt, uh, this is this is a, it's a great question. I've had arguments with many friends over the years who have said something like what you just said, which is that. I mean, leaving aside arguments like, well, the players are getting a lot. They get a full ride scholarship and they get all this publicity and swag and prestige. And, <laughs> and it's a great it's a great deal. But leaving that aside, what they say, and I think this really is the bottom line, is they feel like their experience as fans will be diminished. Their connection to college athletics will be diminished if the players are if we get rid of the fiction even. Right. That, right. They are university students, J just like I was a UNC student. Yeah. Joel Berry's a UNC student. Yeah. And we, we have that in common. And that makes a special bond and connection, which gives college sports its great sort of its special character. And, yeah. and to your question, Matt, like, I'm not sure that that's totally wrong. I think people believe that. People believe that. But I would say two things. One, and I think this is the supreme, I think Kavanaugh's opinion in particular was useful in this regard. As a legal matter, that's irrelevant. Yeah, the, right. The, the question is antitrust law and the rights of players. Right. And whether fans, I mean, Kavanaugh, okay, so let me let me read you. Which, which makes it amazing that that's what the NCA is arguing. They're, it, they're, they're not arguing antitrust laws. They're just arguing emotions and romance. That's all they got. Right. Right. Well, and Matt, let, it, let us note, they've been incredibly successful for decades making those arguments. 1984, NCA versus Board of Regents, the court says, oh, college sports have to be amateur, otherwise college sports just don't exist anymore. I mean, that, okay, that's so, what a so, previous court said. Right. So, so let me, so I'm going to start with, I've got two quotes here I want to read quickly. 
The first is John Paul Stevens, Justice John Paul Stevens, a, a, you know, a liberal hero of the court uh, who wrote the majority opinion in the 1984 uh, Regents, Board, of, Board yeah. of Regents versus Oklahoma case. This was a case that said the NCAA had controlled colleges access to television right. and a group of colleges got together and they formed they made their own television deal university of oklahoma the university of georgia for example said you cannot tell us how often we can be on television right and the ncaa for decades had said had said actually we can tell you this case went all the way to the supreme court and the supreme court sided with the universities against the ncaa and said you were in violation of antitrust law you cannot keep these colleges off television if they can find, you know, a deal in the marketplace. So they actually rejected the NCAA's antitrust arguments decades ago. But it happens, Matt, and I think this is a little understood, that in his majority opinion against the NCAA, in which Stevens accepted all of the economic arguments of the universities against the NCAA, he said, nevertheless, and I'm quoting now, the NCAA plays a critical role in the maintenance of a revered tradition of amateurism in college sports. There can be no question but that it needs ample latitude to play that role or that the preservation of the student athlete in higher education adds richness and diversity to intercollegiate athletics and is entirely consistent, he said, with the goals of the antitrust law. So in other words, yeah. the NCAA was absolutely right as an educational matter to preserve right. amateurism. I just wanna say one thing about that quote that I just read, and I, I just looked this up because I, I didn't know the term. What that quote is called a dicta, a dicta, D-I-C-T-A. It was irrelevant to the court's majority opinion. Right. Right, because the majority opinion was just saying the NCAA was violating antitrust laws. As an aside, basically, Stephen says, hey, amateurism still matters. Yeah, and, right. for, and for 40 years, basically, the NCAA has been treating that yeah, as right. if the Supreme Court, right. as a legal matter, affirmed amateurism, which it did not do. Right. right. And, and so the most important thing, Matt, to answer your first question about the new case and about Kavanaugh's concurring opinion is rejected. I mean, actually, Gorsuch, who wrote the opinion for the court, said that aside that Stevens wrote in 1984, that is not controlling. Right. It's actually irrelevant. Irrelevant, yeah. And Kavanaugh, the concurrence, just went further to explain why the logic of amateurism is such bullshit. And he called it flatly illegal, I think, right? Yeah, illegal. And also, in, like he, he said, he had one of his examples was something like, um, you, like if you go to the hospital to get treated by medical staff, you right. don't like enjoy the treatment more because the staff is not being paid. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or if your food comes from a from a chef who's an amateur <laughs> chef, you don't appreciate it more. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, which I thought was hilarious, actually. Yeah. But, um, well, but but so then what does this what does the Supreme Court ruling actually change? Because it's not about name, image and likeness, really, really. And it's not about colleges giving direct compensation to, to right. college athletes. So, so here's what I think it changes, Matt. It's more ideological than legal. Yeah. Because the NCAA has really made hay for decades 
with the assertion that the highest court in the land has affirmed its view of college athletics. Okay. And the highest court in the land has now very explicitly said, actually, we don't. And I think the fact that just yesterday, one of the governing boards of the NCAA said, we're going to, if we need to totally change name, image, and likeness policy and make it much easier for athletes to do that, then they didn't do it because the court told them to. They did it because now they see the writings on the wall. So this is Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, and in fact, the entire Supreme Court, nine, yes. nine nothing. This was a unanimous decision, Correct. basically saying to the NCAA, I, I know it was, yes, colleges can give laptops to colleges. Exactly, that's right. And, that's and right. they can help them get internships. So that was small potato stuff. Yeah. But it was basically yeah. them saying the NCAA is not above the law. Correct. So, so, so stop acting like it. And, and we the court are not going to give them cover. And right. if they keep trying to litigate this stuff, they are ultimately going to lose. So, so, so from that standpoint, I, I think it was very consequential, even though, as you said, Matt, correctly, what was decided itself was small potatoes compared to what is now coming. Right. Yeah. And it, and it suggests that if name, image, and likeness is ever challenged, then the Supreme Court right. is going to be on the side of the of the students of the of the right. And, and all these state laws, starting with California, you know, are clearly these state laws that said, you know, athletes in the state of college athletes in the state of California can definitely profit off name, image, and likeness. And and right. the NCAA was going to try to fight that, but every other state, of course, was going to jump in. Right. Exactly. John, I just looked this up. This goes yeah. into effect in on July 1st in, in three days in six states. That's right. Um, five of them, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas. Well, what uh -huh. do those five states have in common? They <laughs> love their college football, man. And they don't right. want to see they all do. those guys going to USC and UCLA like they used to do when there was segregation. It's like, no, 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 no. We're going to be at the at the forefront of this and we're going to be we're going to really, right. really yeah happen. i mean so california passed its law first yes but that doesn't they go actually back gave it a longer runway yeah and as soon as they did i mean the states you mentioned were like there is no way we are giving california what amounts to a huge competitive advantage yeah right there's just no but way it, i i really do compare that back to you know i went to ucla and i'm a ucla fan and ucla used to dominate college basketball for the simple reason that black athletes couldn't go to most other places uh -huh. you know uh -huh. so they went out to to ucla uh -huh. uh, they came from new york they came from mississippi they came from everywhere and yeah they didn't want a repeat of that going on uh in right. the deep south right. um you know matt just one one, one quick aside yeah. Um, because I feel like it's almost Pavlovian. You mentioned your alma mater, UCLA. I have to mention my alma mater, University of Michigan, which I am just sick about right now. And we'll save this for another episode. Oh, but the revelations about Bo Schembechler yeah. and the decades of institutionalized rape of athletes at the University of Michigan, which has been rumored and out there for years, but is now you know, sort of fully come to light is, oh, Jonathan. it's, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable and sickening and people uh, basically being we, told, need to, we need to spend an episode on that. Okay. Yeah. 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 I was going to pile on, but I'm going to, I'm going to hold that back. Yeah. So Jonathan, do you think that society is changing 
in a fundamental way with regard to the question of college athletes receiving pay for play, or at least at the very at, at the very least, um, getting compensation for their name, image, and likeness. I, I, the short answer is yes, and I think this goes to the one of the questions you raised a few minutes ago, Matt, which is will fan interest decline as a result? And the short answer is, I think, not very much. I don't think so. In part because the ground has been sort of tilled for this change for years now. You know, I think there's much more sympathy for athletes. And, and, and once television contracts, I mean, they were almost cute in 1984. The television yes. contract yeah, that the Supreme were... Court was ruling on was like, 90 million dollars adorable little television contracts yeah i mean that that that's like a that's like a a a two weeks of tv money now you know now the tv contracts earn the billions and billions and that change by itself has made it so egregious to so many people that while the coaches are making millions the assistant coaches how many yeah. of Dallas Sweeney's staff are making over a million dollars a year or Nick Saban's staff, right? right, right. Um, and what hasn't changed, I mean, talk about inf- what hasn't changed is the players get scholarships. So right. th- th- I think that there's been a, a fundamental change. Um, and so when the time comes that athletes start making real money while playing college, I think some people are going to be turned off by it. But I don't think it's going to be a critical mass at all. No, and I think the name, image, and likeness is going to, when it comes, and it's going to come in a couple of days in those six states, yeah. I think women's sports are going to get a, get a, get a boon. I think all of these, these female athletes who play field hockey and lacrosse and gymnastics, and they can start advertising themselves on Instagram, I, I think it's going to be uh, a uh, real uh, boon you, to them. Women UConn basketball players like Paige Beckers, yeah. they're going to make a lot of money. Yeah, no, that's right. No that's right. Yeah, right. Uh, and so they will be commensurate with the value that, that I think they, they they bring to their to their university. Jonathan, yeah. so I, I know you know we we can keep talking about this forever, but one of the a lot of the headlines that I saw when the Supreme Court made their decision was the NCAA is now going to go away. Any thoughts on that? That that I don't see. I mean, yeah. I, I think that the the universities are still gonna want bodies to regulate their competition for sure. Um, I mean, I think the NCAA's role will, will transform. Yeah. Um, but I, but I, I don't, I don't see the NCAA going away. Yeah. I, I, I think those schools like Alabama and Clemson and Michigan and Ohio state, they don't really need the NCAA and they complain about them sometimes. No, I think they like right. the, the NCAA because the NCAA suggests that there's some sort of fairness going on that like someone's someone's watching to making sure that it's all done on the up and up when when it's just the wild west out there and there's and there is no level playing field in college football especially but but the fact that the ncaa puts that shield out there i think these big time schools kind of benefit from that mythology of the of the level plan. I, I agree with that, Matt. And just one more thing. I know, I know we want to we want to move on to to topic three in a second. But so that people are clear about this, the NCAA in many ways has very little control over football as it is. Correct. All the money goes to the bowls and the conferences. That's right. I mean, yeah. The NCAA organizes the, the 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 basketball tournament and makes a ton of that. That's the only thing that it actually makes money off of. 
Right. Um, so football is already, you oh, know, no, basically yeah. what you just described, Matt. Yeah. Um, so I, in that regard, I don't, I don't think that much is going to change. And the things that the that the football conferences want from the NCAA now, I think they're still going to want from them. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, I got one last question for you then. Sorry. And thanks for bringing me up to yeah. speed yeah. on all this. Um, you're my political go-to guy whenever I have a question about politics, not, not about sports. I never go to you when I have questions <laughs> about sports, but politics always. Um, is there any hope that this 9-0 ruling, which was a very sensible ruling, yes. any hope that this means that this Trump pact court is going to be reasonable on other important issues moving forward? I'm going to start with the glass one percent full and then go to the glass 99 percent empty there were a couple of other rulings this term that i know surprised court observers like a religious freedom case in philadelphia which was nine nothing but was a much more limited ruling than it was expected a 6-3 conservative majority might rule there were a few other cases where um uh, the the Obama, the affordable care act i think has probably survived its last real challenge and did so by seven to two with Amy Coney Barrett in a procedural, but nevertheless, incredibly consequential majority. Mm -hmm. So there, from the perspective of us beleaguered liberals, there were a couple of pleasant surprises, but I would not be holding my breath at all when we get to the big cases on, for example, abortion in the next term, Yeah, that it's going to turn out any differently than we think it's going to turn out. So, okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, um, I guess the other thing that we need to talk about, um, and then I, and I think we will talk about for a little while, I hope, because we are doing a podcast every yeah. two, two weeks at the least, is what's going yes. on in the Olympic Games. Um, yes. You know, I, I teach a course on the Olympic Games, and boy, the Olympics are just a gift to just keep giving and giving and giving. They are endlessly fascinating. There are so many. So we want to talk about all sorts of things in the coming weeks. But the, the, the one thing that caught my eye when I was driving and hiking around the West was an article that came across my, my phone that a uh, US Olympian, potential Olympian, uh, was basically um, claiming that her positive drug test was due to a bad burrito. And so I think this is such an interesting story. This is the story of, of uh, Shelby Houlihan who is uh, the, the US record holder in the women's 1500 meters and the 5,000 meters. And she's uh, was one of the favorites in both of those events, grueling, grueling wow. events. And she tested positive for a steroid. Um, she was told by, I can't remember who was the court of arbitration for sport or the US drug testing agency, whatever, by, 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 by some agency that she had tested positive for nandrolone which is a uh, testosterone. It's a, it's a steroid, which you can't have in your body, which I think is what Roger Clemens was, was taking. I, I get my, my steroids and my artificial testosterones mixed up every once in a while, but I'm pretty sure it was nandrolone. And you, you can't have it because it makes you stronger. It makes you faster. And her response, her, and you, you have to fight the accusation and it, what you really have to do in these cases is not just um, 
the, the burden of proof is now on you, uh, on, on the athlete when this happens. And you have to come up with a different scenario. And right. the scenario she came up with is that she ate a bad burrito, um, a burrito from a food truck. I think it was in Beaverton, Oregon, uh, that had, uh, it, it, was, it was such a wild story. It was a carne asada burrito, so it was beef but it had this pork product in it. It had pork intestine sort of cross contamination in it. And it turns out nandrolone is a, is, is a steroid that pig farmers, if done in the US, illegally do put into their-, their Illegally, their... okay. So they are not allowed to use it, but they use it anyway. Yeah, right. I mean, human beings knowing- Obviously it's not legal to eat the subsequent no 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 right right you have no idea but just as far as farming goes you're not supposed to use it right yeah it turns out we want our pigs to be meaty right (laughs) like athletes inject steroids in them to increase beef uh and that's basically what the what the what the pig farmers are doing all of this is turning me off meat almost entirely reading about this this story and um well, she's done. She's out of the Olympics. She she, she was not allowed to. So she made that argument, and they responded by saying, "Did they say it could have been in that, but it couldn't have explained your levels?" Or well, it it still hasn't been totally adjudicated yet. But the fact of the matter is, she wasn't allowed to run in the U.S. trials. I see. Because I see. this this came to light like right before it. So right. she's out. She's out of Tokyo 2021. She is not running. Right. Uh, so, so, so in effect. Ooh, I like that music. What was that? Sorry that was about sexy. That. Yeah. I thought I took one up. So okay. in effect, the mere indictment eliminated her from competition even before the conviction. Yeah, correct. And now she can um, she can battle it and try to get back into uh, Paris 2024. It's, it's actually right. terrible timing for her. It's a four-year ban. And normally a four-year ban will only kick you out of one Olympics, but not this time. Uh, right. It's be- only three years apart. Because it's only three years apart. Yeah, so she's facing... So this is a tough one for her. She could at least appeal the length of the suspension. Yeah, she, she, she could do right. that. And, and so here's yeah. what I'm hearing, Jonathan. I'm hearing that Nandrolone, you'd have to be an idiot to be an athlete and take Nandrolone. Like it is a, a easily detected steroid. Uh, it, it's the one people used to do 20 years ago and now everyone looks for it. People know how to test for it. So that's one wow. argument in her favor. She's not that stupid to have done Nandrolone. Right. And right. people who study this say, it's possible that it's possible that you can test positive from the pig intestines that are in your burrito, in the burritos we eat all the time. Um, so what do we do with, I mean, moving forward? Um, I, I know this is gonna be annoying, Matt, but before I answer that question, I have to make a quick Seinfeld reference here, which is um, there's an episode where Elaine She's working for the Jay Peterman catalog and she's going to get to go on some trip to Burma, but she tests positive for opium. Oh, that's right. I and remember. She's about to be fired, but it turns out it's because she ate a poppy seed muffin. Poppy seed muffin. So then she gets Jerry's mom to provide a urine sample instead of her. 
And Peterman says, okay, I'm not going to fire you. You don't have opium, but you can't go on that trip. You have like the brittle bones of a 70 You have osteopor yeah, osteoporosis. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So Shelby Houlihan should have gotten someone else's urine. Well, that's, I mean, that of course is done. Yes. But I mean, th this was, I, my understanding is that this was fundamental to the Russian doping scheme. Right. Was that they were able to systematically substitute other people's samples you know that's what they were doing in sochi and then they haven't given people access to their athletes i mean russia is clearly right. engaged right. in some sort of right. shenanigan yeah it, it just makes me wonder what is what is wada the world anti-doping association and what does the ioc do moving forward or have we got to a place where let's just stop testing entirely it's just there are too many potential yeah. false positives yeah and there's no way they're catching all of the people who are cheating Right, so, so it becomes arbitrary. Yeah, so any thought? And, and it's worth adding that, and I know, I know there's a fierce debate about this, but many people who understand how these chemicals and hormones and supplements work in our body will tell you that the distinction between what the governing agencies allow and don't allow is in many ways arbitrary. That the things that they do allow provide just as much if different kinds of performance enhancement mm -hmm. as the things they don't like. It's not like there's a clear spectrum, like there's a class of drugs that are a 10, they right. pro provide the most enhancement, and then there's the ones that provide, it's all way more messy and complicated yeah. than that, right? And so that's one, that's one reason why I've always been I've always tended to poo-poo drug use. I mean, look, you and I are both baseball fans, you know, for, for, for first and first and always. And of course, the steroid era in the 90s and 2000s was so devastating for the sport. But many people pointed out that, you know, our beloved heroes of our childhood, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, et cetera, they were all taking amphetamines. Right. Right. Jim Bowden describes bowls of them in, in the yeah. in the clubhouse in ball four, right? Yeah. And there's good evidence that amphetamines are a tremendous performance enhancing drug, right. even less fancy than the things that Jose Canseco was injecting into himself. And right. His, so I guess part of my feeling is that it's always been so arbitrary that it makes it hard for me to feel like we're doing anything but just um, we're just creating fictions around what's a clean athlete and what's not a clean athlete. What, um, what, okay, what do you think of that, Matt? Well, so, so the, this is not an argument that the steroids don't work. You're you're not yeah. saying it that. Is not an, yeah. Okay, because you know, I the, the, one of the no, other things clearly work differently for different people, like yeah. everything else, right? Sure, sure, sure. I think there are so many interesting stories. You know, every four years we get caught up on who the U.S. track and field athletes are because they're going to be in our living rooms for ten days yep. over the, right. over the summer, and all of these stories about them. And I think one of the most remarkable athletes to come out of the U.S. Olympic trials is Shakari Richardson. She runs the one hundred meters for, for for the U.S. And she's kind of a clone of Florence Griffith Joyner, FloJo. She's got uh -huh. the got long hair she's got long fingernails i mean i don't know if it's an homage to flojo or or what but she just exudes flojo-ness one of the most dynamic female athletes of our entire lifetime 
Flojo still holds the women's 100 meter record set back in 1988. That is incredible. 10.49. And she retired the next year because they started doing drug testing. There there is no doubt in my mind that Flojo doped. Um, And and she died very young. And she died very young. Yeah, they're all all sorts. Wasn't she 37 or something? Yeah, she died like, like, Eight years later, and some people suggest it could have been, you know, from the steroid use. Shakari Richardson, 10.86. Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, I was just looking this up. She's the great Jamaican sprinter. Uh, She's probably the favorite going into the Olympics, so she's a little older. 10.63. That's Uh still 0.15, which is a long time. in the 100 meters behind Flojo, um, you know, it's sort of, I would imagine these, and I'm, I know I'm sort of, you know, shifting gears here and, and crossing all of the narratives, but, you know, there's a way in which these remarkable female athletes who are beholden to the drug test must be thinking, I'm never going to be able to, to, to get any type of record unless I do the types of thing that, that, that Flojo and people were doing in the, in the 1980s. Well, Matt, to that, to that, let me ask you a question. I don't know if you talk about this with your Olympics class. Haven't people suggested that one thing you could do is have an Olympics that's unregulated as to what goes in your body mm-hmm. and an Olympics that, it, like, haven't people talked about that? Like, sure, sure. You have a, yeah, you have a free-for-all Olympics or a doper's paradise oh. Olympics. Yeah. And then, and then one that's much more strictly, I mean, I don't know if that would ever happen, but. Well, and it's a, it's a fine idea to talk about, but why would we think that the people who entered the non-doping Olympics still end, end up wouldn't doing be doping? Thing. Yeah. Right. So what's the point? But no, it, it would be interesting to see how fast Usain Bolt could go if he was taking, you know, Nandrolone or eating pig intestine so. filled burritos or, or whatever. So, so the one on that score, Matt, the one argument that I've been more sympathetic to than any other about the regulation of steroids, leaving aside, I mean, I know there's health risks, but those are also complicated, is athletes complaining, it's not fair that I'm doing it without injecting crap into my body sure but then i can't i mean look if you were going to be a cyclist in the tour de france in whatever the first decade of the 21st century if you weren't going to dope there was no reason to show up correct but i mean everybody was doping i mean lance of course you know was the was the iconic figure there but everybody was doing it basically and so they still are yeah and, may, and maybe they still are, I don't know, right. Um, but I am sympathetic to that sense of, pr- that sense of injustice that, you know, I really don't wanna put things in my body that might be dangerous to me, but then then I don't feel like I have a shot. Yeah, no, and I'm, and I'm sympathetic to Shakari Richardson and Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, who they aren't calling Flojo out, but they right. they know what a world record in the 100 meters would mean to them. Right. I mean, it would be a source of right. great pride. It would be a source of, of of lucrative income. You know, the endorsements right. come flying in, but I don't think they can get there. 
just because they're just testing at a well and i feel and i and i feel like more and more matt and this in some ways is i feel like the theme of all of yours and my podcasts is like the the sports fan today has to be able to compartmentalize you know because we still love watching these competitions but they're infused with all of these other problems and complexities that you know the idea of like just stick to sports it doesn't even make sense to talk about that anymore and that includes when it comes to world records like as a baseball fan i mean the fact that bonds hit 762 or whatever home runs it was in his career 763 like, please jonathan excuse me okay do you i mean do you is it do you is that to you is that the record is 755 the record are both kind of the record, but in your mind, you have an asterisk next to one. I mean, I, I feel like we're doing that all the time, kind of, you yeah. know? And, and, and I feel like we're we're reading medical journals more and more with regard in, <laughs> in, in, in the world of sports, way more than I ever ever thought thought I would. I mean, you need to be an endocrinologist or uh, whatever the, the heck it is to, to understand what's going on. In or at least be willing to mango the, mangle the endocrinology in a podcast, you know. <laughs> right, exactly. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Jonathan, we have more Olympic things to talk about moving forward. Uh, we need to talk... Uh, we're gonna, I think we'll probably save this for next time. I think we need to talk about Gwen Berry, um, really? right? Who just got in a, had, had, had another podium anthem moment. Uh -huh. um, we definitely want to try to talk about Laurel Hubbard, who's the New Zealand weightlifter, um, transgender athlete who has qualified for, for New Zealand and is, is really going to be maybe the story, I think, of these, these upcoming games. So, so much more to talk and, about. And is she the first? transgender athlete to qualify for the olympics yes openly transgender athlete to qualify for the olympics and and uh i know Ch chelsea wolf who does bmx for the united states is an alternate uh there are uh, I, there are more coming with with without a doubt and boy you want to talk about a, a sort of complicated uh issue i think we need to wade into that pretty soon yeah yeah. All right. So this has been fun catching up. I'm going to let you take us home, but I, I want to thank Daniel Myrick for, for helping us out here and being our, our engineer extraordinaire. I mean, the, the guy who literally turns on the microphone because we don't know how to do it and is going to get this, <laughs> this, this podcast out to y'all. So Daniel, great having you aboard. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here with you guys. Appreciate it. So this has been another episode of the Agony of Defeat podcast. I'm Jonathan Weiler. Oh, me. I'm Matt Andrews. And that's Matt Andrews. And we, come hell or high water, we will be back soon. Well done. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Cheers.